Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create la tua vita. Create your life. Don't skip your life. You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create la vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create Your Life family, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to share some exciting information from our sponsor. We only pick people and companies that we think are awesome to bring onto the show, so please support them. As a podcaster, I've spent hours and hours editing, doing show graphics, and much more, and I finally got fed up with losing all of my free time to post-production activities. So I decided to do something about it. And if you are a fellow busy podcaster who would like to just record and have someone else do the dirty work of graphic creation, tagging and uploading your show to your server and in-depth SEO generating show notes, go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown, and today we have an amazing guest in the studio, as we always do, but this gentleman is actually a friend of mine and is doing some amazing things in a market that has been in need of a technological revamp for some time. So I'm excited to come on and really figure out how he's making some changes and how I can make some changes in my life as well in order to uh, be more efficient around living. He is the co-founder and CEO at Bixby, a real estate technology company that makes it easy for property managers to provide top quality service to their tenants and residents. He founded Bixby in New York City in April 2016 and leads a team of technologists that work closely with property owners and managers to create more connected, efficient, and sustainable communities. Previously, he founded MGI, a consulting firm providing outsourced business and product development services to early stage technology companies. He graduated from New York University's Stern School of Business in 2012 with a BS in finance and international business and a minor in film production from the Tisch School of the Arts. He is also a full stack web developer and completed General Assembly's web development immersive program in 2015. Create Your Life family, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Mark Smuckler. Mark, please say hello to the Create Your Life family. Hello, Create Your Life family, and good morning, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to be part of the show. Yeah, Mark, no, I'm excited too, man. It's been a long time in the making for you to, to come and to be on the show. Uh, I want to jump right in and just ask you, man, you're originally from Moscow and grew up in New Jersey after moving to the States at the age of three. Tell us about growing up and moving to NYC to attend school in 2008. Sure, yeah. I can't speak too much about my family's trip from Russia because I was only three years old when we moved here. But like you mentioned, I grew up in New Jersey, not too far from New York, in a town called Montclair, about 30 minutes west of the city. Sports was a really big part of my life. I was a gymnast and a martial artist until the age of 13 before picking up tennis and soccer. And then, as you mentioned, I moved to New York in 2008. 
to study finance at Stern at NYU, and I've been living in New York ever since. Awesome. We were talking a little bit earlier, and you talked about your dad wanting to get out of Russia and come over to the U.S. to find better life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think there was a couple years before you were born that they had been already trying to make yep, it over. That's right. So my family is what are referred to as refuseniks. It's a term given to Jews who were trying to leave the Soviet Union but weren't allowed to leave because of our religious inclination. So I was born in 1989, and the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. My dad was the editor of one of the underground Jewish newspapers in Russia. So he was really involved in the Jewish movement, uh, particularly with helping Jews either practice freedom or practice their religion in Russia and or leave the country where they wouldn't be persecuted. So in 1991, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed, that gave my family the opportunity to leave. And we kind of had three choices, either to go to Israel, to England, or to the U.S. And we were sponsored by a synagogue in Bloomfield, New Jersey called Temple Ner Tamid and finally made the jump in in early 1992. And like I said, grew up in, in Montclair. Okay, awesome. Now, when you were growing up in Montclair, you actually used to be in a band. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And do you still play? Yeah, music <laughs> was a huge part of my life. It's a big part of my family's life. My mother studied piano her entire life. Her father, my grandfather, is a violin teacher still to this day. Wow. So I picked up music at a really early age, starting with piano, but that didn't last very long because my mother was my teacher and she was a little bit strict, to, to put it lightly. <laughs> uh, so about three weeks into taking lessons with her, I said, you know what, I'm going to go play guitar instead. Mm. And so started playing guitar when I was 11. When I got to high school, me and a few of my friends started a punk rock band. Okay. We used to play shows all over New Jersey, but... I mentioned that I played a lot of sports, and I guess I was a little clumsy or injury-prone because I broke my arm three years in a row. Wow. Snowboarding one year, playing hockey the next year, skateboarding the year after that. So playing guitar was a little bit tough, given that I was kind of in a cast for a lot of those years. So I got really involved in the management side of the business. Mm -hmm. I helped our band produce an album. And then when I got to college, I started managing talent. I got to pause you, man. What was the name of the band? The name of the band was Laudable. We found it in a dictionary, very typical. It means worthy of praise. Okay, awesome. So you get to college, and now you're on the management side. How's that going? I get to college, I'm on the management side, and, and that's what I wanted to make a career out of. I wanted to work in music for my entire life, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be on the business side of it. I started interning for an individual. His name was Matt Graham. Mm -hmm. Matt has a really interesting story because he was Scooter Braun's roommate at Emory University. And for those of you who are familiar with the media industry, Scooter is the one that found Justin Bieber and now runs a company called Scooter Braun Management, uh, really successful in the industry. Matt was managing an artist named Jared Evan. I was very good friends with Jared's guitarist, Andrew Watt. And it was a great experience. I was Matt's assistant. We filmed videos for Jared booked concerts for him. It was a great experience, but when I graduated, I had an opportunity to go work in finance. Mm -hmm. And I went to Matt and I said, hey, look, I've got this job offer. They're willing to pay me a good amount of money. I need you to pay me a little bit, right? I think at that time I was making, I don't know, maybe seven or $8 per hour as his intern. And yeah. I said, I, I need a salary. It doesn't need to be my investment banking salary, but I got to get paid because I'm graduating school and I have bills to pay. Right. And he said, you know, I think I might be going in-house at Interscope and I might be going to work with Scooter and moving to Los Angeles. And 
you know, I'm just not sure. And what I felt like was, well, I have this opportunity for a great job. Why don't I take it? Mm -hmm. uh, meaning the investment banking role at a company called Stevens. And then I'll make some money. I'll work hard for two years and I'll come back into the industry. Yeah. What I found was two years out of the, the music industry, a lot of things change. Mm. A lot of things change in every industry in two years. Right. The people that you know, they move into different roles. They move into different companies. Some leave the industry. People come into the industry. And all of a sudden, the players and the landscape that you know isn't quite the same. I felt the same thing when I left the finance industry, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. I also, when I left banking, thought one day I could probably come back into finance if my entrepreneurial journey doesn't work. Mm. But for a number of reasons similar to the ones that I mentioned about the music industry and, and leaving that space, it's really tough when you leave an industry to pick up the pieces and come back right where you left off. I can only imagine what that looks like. So now you've done this, you're working in finance, or you just switched industries from music. Now you're going into finance. What was that like? How was that experience? It was a completely different culture. Okay. So I graduated from NYU in January of 2012. Mm -hmm. And I spent a few months traveling before starting my first job in Little Rock, Arkansas, for this company called Stevens Inc., which is a privately held investment bank, like I mentioned, based in Little Rock, Arkansas, a world completely unlike the one I'm familiar with here in New York City. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in an industry that I hadn't really had a ton of experience. Mm -hmm. So it was an incredible experience, a very interesting time. I learned a lot. I learned things about myself. I grew personally. I grew professionally. Mm -hmm. But it was a very, very different environment. I spent the first three months living in Little Rock. If you've never been to Little Rock, it's, it's a very... <laughs> kind of, I guess, typical American city to a certain extent. I always characterize it by a town that has two dueling piano bars right across the street from one another. Wow. Which um, I'd never seen a dueling piano bar in my life. So to have two across the street downtown was kind of symbolic of where I was for me. Right. Um, but after spending three months there, I moved back to New York City where I worked out of the New York City office. Mm -hmm. I covered e-commerce, consumer and retail as an investment banking analyst doing mostly merger and acquisition advisory, a little bit of capital markets. We placed the, close to about a billion dollars in capital during my two years there. I worked on a really small team with some very smart individuals. It was a great experience, but I didn't feel like I wanted to work in finance for my entire career, and that's when I decided to make the switch. Okay. So, yeah, how did the switch come about? Like, what was actually going through your mind? Like, you know, walk us through your journey of creating Bixby. Yeah, the journey of creating Bixby is a long one. It'll, we'll probably have to cover it in a few different parts. Okay. I'll start by saying that my father had been an entrepreneur his entire life, mm -hmm. or my entire life, rather. When my father studied engineering, mm -hmm. when he was getting his PhD, he ended up selling his dissertation rather than completing his PhD to pursue the magazine, the underground newspaper, right. and some of the other roles that he was taking in, in the Jewish movement Who did he sell it to? He sold it to another student. Nice. It was another PhD candidate who needed to who needed to graduate, and my dad sold his dissertation to him. So nice. when my dad moved here, he started an adoption business and a travel agency. And what mm -hmm. his business was was helping American families adopt children from Russia. Given that Russia had just kind of opened its doors for the first time, mm -hmm. it was really important that there was somebody who really understood the landscape there can navigate the politics, 
uh, can navigate the landscape in general. Mm -hmm. And so that was really his role with his partner here in the U.S. The travel agency would help kids and families travel back and forth, mm -hmm. get visas, flights, etc. And my dad's role was to help mediate between the orphanages and help American families adopt. Okay. So I knew for a long time that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, although I didn't really know what that meant. Mm -hmm. In fact, I asked my brother what entrepreneurship was when I was younger, and he said something along the lines of, kind of means you don't really do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that was the stigma that I carried with me for almost 10 years, wow. meaning that you know entrepreneurs don't really do much. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I... I realized that that wasn't the case um, and really pursued what is really entrepreneurship, which is building something mm -hmm. from nothing. So when I started to think about leaving the finance industry, it actually came about from two entrepreneurs in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. These guys, their names are Dave and Dave. They started an omni-channel retail business, uh, which means they started a business that was a traditional pick and pack. They mm -hmm. had warehouses where they would store items for retail brands, consumer brands, and handle the shipping and logistics. Mm -hmm. What that transitioned into over time is what I called omni-channel retail. So it's a big trend in the retail industry today, but it's kind of a mix of e-commerce, drop shipping, and being able to identify what is the most cost-effective way to get a product to an end consumer? Mm -hmm. And essentially, they represented some of the top luxury brands like Tory Burch and Hugo Boss, and mm -hmm. they facilitated all of their e-commerce and their call centers and their shipping and logistics. So if you were to go to a Hugo Boss website and order something, that was actually coming from this warehouse in Cincinnati. And these guys were selling their business, and it was the last deal that I did at Stevens. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in, in Cincinnati, and I actually fell in love with their journey, the journey of building a business. And I realized that rather than going from company to company and helping them acquire new businesses or sell their business, I really wanted to be on the operating side, and mm -hmm. I wanted to build something. They said something to me that really stuck with me, which was, Mark, it sounds like you want to build something, and all we're going to say is, as long as you're watching, you're not playing, which meant as long as I was reading books about entrepreneurship and how to start businesses and, and how, to, how to build something, I wasn't actually getting the experience of doing it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of put things into perspective for me in that if I really want to build a company, the only way to do it is to start. Right. And I'd also felt, in. you got to jump in, and I felt that as long as I was kind of doing it on evenings and weekend nights, I wasn't really giving it the full attention, work ethic, workload that it really deserved mm -hmm. and needed to be a successful business. But I also knew that I didn't know anything about starting a company. I'd okay. learned a lot during my time at Stevens about mature businesses. Mm-hmm what it's like to sell a business at the end of its trajectory, mm -hmm. things like revenue and gross profit margins and painting a story around a business. But I had no idea what it was like to start a business from nothing and what those first years look like. Mm -hmm. What are the documents required to incorporate a business? Do mm -hmm. you want to use an LLC versus a C-Corp? How do you structure employment agreements? None of those things did I have any experience in. So... 
what I decided to do was to start the consulting company. Okay. And the consulting company allowed me to work with other early stage companies, founders, three, four, five person teams mm -hmm. that were in those early stages of their business. Mm -hmm. I could provide them with something that they needed, which was financial analysis, creating financial models, pitch decks, raising capital. But it allowed me to really observe what it was like to start something and learn from them, both their mistakes as well as the things that they were doing well. Mm -hmm. And that was really the purpose of the consulting agency. Of course, to make money at the same time and pay for, for my living. But it was a learning experience and uh, the first step in my path to, to Bixby. Okay. And so what was the second step? Like, how do you guys even come up with the idea? Are you by yourself? Did you come up with it on your own? Like, how does this work? Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to start something, but I had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like the thought of sitting in a room thinking of ideas that people might like. Right. I wanted to find something a little bit more organically. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that I didn't want to start it by myself. Okay. And so those two things alone kind of require the perfect storm, right? You need to have a different perspective about something that other people don't see. Mm -hmm. And then you need to find other people that have that same perspective and vision mm -hmm. to be able to execute on it with them. Those other people have to be in the right time in their life, right? They have to be willing to leave their jobs. Mm -hmm. They have to be willing to take a pay cut. They have to be willing to work really hard, long hours. Right. It's a huge commitment. It's really mm -hmm. hard to find other people that can align on that passion at the exact same time in a similar place as you mm -hmm. and be willing to make those sacrifices. So Bixby came about really organically. After my first year in the consulting business, I realized I was missing a key skill set, and that was an understanding of technology. Okay. And whether I built a software business mm -hmm. or a retail business, technology was going to have some component. Right. Building a website or offering a software as a service product, there mm -hmm. was going to be some kind of component in technology. And I didn't like that when I spoke to engineering teams, I, I couldn't understand truly what they were talking about. Okay. How long is it going to take to build this? How much is it going to cost? What are the frameworks you use? These are questions that I really couldn't answer, and it made me uncomfortable, A, because I'm a little bit of a control freak, I suppose, but B, if I was going to start a business, I, I needed to know all aspects of the company. So that's when I went to General Assembly. Okay. And I spent three months in their web development immersive program learning how to be a full-stack developer. Mm -hmm. So now this is about a year and a half after I left Stevens, two years after I graduated. So mm -hmm. we're talking three and a half years after I finished college and I'm going back to school to learn software development, which isn't something that I had ever really pursued beyond trying to teach myself on websites like Code Academy and Udemy. Mm -hmm. When I graduated, I realized I know how to code and I've built a few projects, mm -hmm. but I'm not a great developer by any means. And I need more reps. I need practice. Okay. So I went back to that same consulting agency that I'd started and I bundled in a web development component. Mm -hmm. And we started to build websites and design websites for companies. And I did that for an entire year, just getting better at coding. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, most of the websites that I built were websites for real estate companies gotcha. about the company, the team, what their vacancy is, what apartments are renting for, apply for an apartment. And I probably built somewhere between six and seven of these kinds of websites, one of which was for 
who eventually became my co-founder, Alex Oheb Shalom at Empire Management. Okay. And this was late 2015 and the very, very beginnings of Bixby. And, and how we started Bixby actually was kind of interesting in its own right. Alex had just taken over management at his dad's company, Empire Management. And he called me and he said, hey, Mark, I just took over management. I'm overseeing three properties. And by the way, they own and manage a little over 2,000 apartments across the city. So not a small operation to inherit. Mm -hmm. And he said, every time something happens at a building, I have to go down to the building and put a piece of paper on the wall that says we're shutting off the water for an hour. Nobody sees it. And we end up getting phone calls with tenants who are furious because there's no hot water. Right. My phones ring off the hook all day with tenants complaining that they called the super and the issue two weeks later still hasn't been fixed. Mm -hmm. And Alex is sitting there saying, hey, I'm so sorry. I didn't know this was an issue. I'll make sure to get on it. Mm -hmm. And they were only taking checks in the mail for rent. Wow. So he called me and he said, we are a very old school operation and we need some way to modernize and digitize the business. Mm -hmm. I told him, there's got to be other products out there. So let's try and find one. You don't need to build something from scratch. Right. And after spending a few months looking for other products and evaluating everything that's out there, we felt like there wasn't something that really focused on providing a better experience to the tenants. Mm -hmm. There wasn't something that was mobile friendly. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't something that was really built for non-doorman buildings, which is most of his properties. And that's when we really got interested in the opportunity and started to pursue it more seriously. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, before we came to the conclusion that we wanted to dedicate our time to building Bixby, mm -hmm. Alex had actually wanted to build a travel website. He had felt like inheriting his dad's business isn't necessarily what he wanted, and he wanted to build something for his own. He was an avid traveler. And I spent a good three months convincing him that he's not the right person to start a travel company. <laughs> well, why did you feel that he wasn't the right person? Because I think that even though you're passionate about travel or you're passionate about music, it doesn't necessarily make you the right person to start a company in that industry. Right. You can love traveling and have visited 50 different companies. But if you don't know anything about the transportation industry mm -hmm. and how airlines operate, if mm -hmm. you don't know any influencers in the travel space, mm -hmm. if you don't know how the industry works, it's hard to start a business in it. Yeah. I'm really passionate about playing soccer. Right. I'm not out there starting a soccer team. Or trying <laughs> to go MLB. Or trying to go pro. Right. <laughs> so I think Alex really wanted to start something. I pushed him to look into something that he had a, a lot of experience in. Right. And when he went back to the company and saw all of the inefficiencies, that's really where Bixby started. And so we made an agreement, essentially, that we'll build the product for his company for free. Mm -hmm. But we're going to start a company that owns the code. We're going to try and bring it to market. Mm -hmm. And Alex is going to give us office space for the next five years. Love it. That's a great, that's a good terms for your end. How did that work? I mean, we're still here two years later and we still don't pay for our office. And Alex <laughs> is a co-founder. I mean, it, it was incredible. My background wasn't in real estate. Right. And I ended up building a real estate tech company. Mm -hmm. So that never would have been possible mm -hmm. had I not had complete participation and support from Alex and the Empire team. 
our office was next door to their office. Yeah. Those first two months when I was building the product, I spent every day bothering the property managers to understand what the necessary features and functionality were and what the user experience needed to be. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I spent almost every evening at the buildings talking to residents, mm. holding cocktail hours and saying, hey, what are some of the pain points you feel at the building? How do you communicate with management? How do you think a product like this can alleviate those things? What do you want in a product like this that we haven't already built in this MVP or minimum viable product? Mm -hmm. So without the support of the Empire team, the access to the tenants, the access to the property managers, Bixby definitely never would would have existed. Well, Create Your Life family, I think Mark is definitely telling us that he did a lot of uh, customer development in order to get to where he is and to understand the product, the industry, et cetera. So research and being on the ground, it matters and it makes a huge difference. Mark, how has Bixby changed since you first started? More than anything, Bixby's become a real company. It's kind of grown up. Mm Mm-hmm. We follow a very, very lean methodology at the company. Okay. For those listeners who have read The Lean Startup or haven't read The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, Mm -hmm. I absolutely recommend it. Absolutely. And it's a framework that you can apply to anything, Mm -hmm. Um, not just to entrepreneurship and creating a business, but also your day-to-day job and also your personal life. And it's really kind of boils down to or comes down to a concept of build, measure, learn, Mm -hmm. and maximize the efficiency of that feedback loop, meaning do that as fast as possible Mm -hmm. so that you don't build something that nobody wants. Right. That's super important. One of my friends said that, you know, you could spend $50,000 on an app or on some tech and not have any users. So oftentimes we, on the Create Your Life series, we discuss learn, measure, build so that you know exactly what's going on in the market. You do the research, do the customer development and discovery, and then you go and you build. So Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I guess you can also consider learn, build, measure, Mm -hmm. but making sure you do that really quickly so you don't build everything all at once. Absolutely. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. when we started the company, we raised $35,000. Okay which is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of building a mature business. Right. We raised it from Alex, myself, and a few friends and family and and real estate angels. Mm -hmm. And I told everyone, I don't know if we have a business. We have an idea. We think that it can solve a pain point. Mm -hmm. We have a few customers that have validated that they need a product like this. Mm -hmm. But just because you can have three, four, five people using a product that you build doesn't mean that you can create a sustainable business. It's one of the reasons so many startups fail so early and and one of the key details that that people miss. Mm -hmm. A great product does not necessarily always translate into a great business. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's one of the reasons we've made it to this point where we've really taken the company day by day. We kind of have this mindset of, I guess you can call it being humble, but more so it's, I think, being open-minded and Mm -hmm. and not being too committed to anything. Okay. Meaning that we don't really take anything as fact forever. Right. What we know today might change tomorrow. Right. And so when we started the company and started building the product, it was, we're acutely aware of the fact that what we're building today, what we think today, the business model today is very, very likely to change over Mm -hmm. time. 
And I think that's how the company really changed. We started as a startup that had no idea what the business would ultimately become. And now we've become more of a, a real organization that has over 500 property management clients across the country, over 2,000 buildings that use the product, and that's forced us to grow up. Right. And so how big is your team and how did you go about assembling the people on your team? Yeah, we're about seven people now. And I think in a lot of ways, the story is like a season of Silicon Valley. Uh, okay. The ups and downs and the challenges, both kind of leading up to starting Bixby and then after. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I didn't mention, while I was running the consulting agency, I was also bartending at night. Okay. And which typical, I built the first product out of that bar. Mm -hmm. And I also found our first employee there. So we had a regular, he lived upstairs above the bar. His, no, his name was Simon Hooley. Mm -hmm. He was working at BlackRock at the time with a lot of experience in the real estate industry. So when we started the company, it was three of us. Alex was head of sales. I was head of product. Mm -hmm. Simon was head of operations and kind of the, the business and finance component. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, it's really tough to start a company, not to mention starting it on your own. Mm -hmm. right? So I thought it was really important to put together a core team very early on for a number of reasons. For Alex, about nine months in, he started to build a hotel with his family. Mm -hmm. He also got really busy overseeing empire management. And he didn't have enough time to dedicate to Bixby. So mm -hmm. we decided to kind of remove him from day to day. And he's still on our board of directors. He's still an advisor to the company. Mm -hmm. I speak to him almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But Alex is no longer involved in the day to day. Okay. Simon uh, had a family emergency. He's from London. And he ultimately had to go back to England to take care of the family and the family business. Okay. So within the first six months of starting the company, wow. all of a sudden, it's kind of like, cool, guys, I guess I'll take it from here. And what that meant was I need to find senior leaders to bring into the company. And that's been a big focus of mine ever since. Today, we're about seven people. We have a lead engineer, Eric Wong, who's mm -hmm. been with us from the very beginning, one of the best developers I've ever met. Mm -hmm. We have a great designer in... Selena Mack, we met her while we were going through the Newark Venture Partners Accelerator Program, mm -hmm. and she's been with us ever since for about the last seven months. We've got four individuals on our sales team, Derek Phillips being one of them, Sean Parson. We had a great individual in Tariq Cooper who recently left to join Toll Brothers as a director of leasing there. And um, we had recently a resource up in Toronto as we look to expand to the Canadian market in Dustin Heimler. Okay. Um, so in terms of how the company's changed, I think that's it more than anything. What characteristics were you looking for in these individuals when you decided to hire them? I think the most important characteristics are passion for the business and the industry. Mm -hmm. If you're not passionate about the product that we're building, the problems that we're solving, and the real estate industry and how our product can make that space better, mm -hmm. it's just going to be really tough, right? Those late nights when you're at the office at 9 or 10 p.m. and you're asking yourself, why am I here? Mm -hmm. That number one has to be there. I'm mm -hmm. passionate about what we're doing, the problems we're solving, and who we're solving it for. Okay. I think that's by far the number one qualification. The second one is being willing to learn, but also to an extent being a master of your craft. At our stage in the company, 
in the first two years of any company, you're really trying to prove yourself. And I think it's kind of like against all odds. Nobody has a reason to give you a benefit of the doubt or to give you a chance. You've got to earn it. You have to prove that you belong in that particular industry or in that particular space. Mm -hmm. And I mention those things because I think it's important that when you come on to a company at such an early stage that you understand that kind of fight for survival and you're ready to execute and you're ready to give it your all. So really being able to own the role at the company and do your job, do it well, be creative about it. I think that was an, another important one. And then the last thing I would say is, I want to say the willingness to learn, but it's also the willingness to struggle, I think. To um, see it through. Yeah. Go through the tough times. Exactly. I think when people join a startup, there's a, oftentimes kind of rosy colored glasses about what that's going to be. Absolutely. Right. Like uh, looking like WeWork or Slack or Airbnb and the trajectory. But what most people don't realize is that when you learn about those companies or you read about them, they're often five, six, seven years into the journey. And nobody necessarily remembers talks about those first two years of the mm -hmm. entrepreneurs sitting in a room late nights without anybody having any faith in the business model. Absolutely. And we're always very transparent when we bring people on about that fact, that we're not hanging around playing ping pong all day. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not playing ping pong at all. <laughs> I think you raised a, a very important factor of entrepreneurship in that. And so I want to say for you, you're two years in, you guys have raised capital. How did you deal with the negative feedback or impressions from other people as you're rising? And were you prepared for it? Was it public? Was it private? First thing I'll say is when you're starting a company, nobody is going to necessarily see things the way you see them or very few people. Mm -hmm. So the number of no's that I've gotten since starting the business from VCs, advisors, clients is most definitely in the thousands. And like I mentioned before, it's really on you to prove yourself. I think I was very much prepared for that fight because I had seen it in the other companies that I worked with as a consultant. I knew how difficult it was to raise that first round of funding, that angel round of funding, that seed round of funding. And I saw how difficult it was to recruit great talent, how difficult it was to sign your first clients. When you go out to sign your first clients, one of the first questions you get is, well, who else uses your product, right? So if no one's using your product yet, mm -hmm. it's really, really hard to get somebody to make that commitment and right. say, yeah, I'll, get, I'll give you a shot. Right. We appreciate those early clients more than anything. Okay. You said something that's insane and that a lot of people don't talk about. You say you've received thousands of no's. How did you push past them and stay motivated? Yeah, so... No's come in all different shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask any entrepreneur, they'll say the best no is a, is a quick no. Right? Kill, yeah. kill me quickly. Actually, that is really true. Right? The worst no's are the ones that drag out for two months and require six conversations and then they pass. And, and paperwork. And the paperwork and like the, the time. Proposals and, yeah, absolutely. Time is very finite and you're always trying to figure out where to allocate that mm -hmm. resource. So... How did I motivate myself to get over the no's? I think purely with an understanding that most people are going to say no. Okay. And so then it just becomes a numbers game. And the no's become the default. You kind of go into the meeting thinking this person is probably going to say no. 
And then if you get a yes, it's a pleasant surprise. <laughs> okay. And what about for yourself personally? You're on the grind. You're working to make this happen. You're spending all of this time at the company, at Empire, you know, right next door to the office. You're there. You're interviewing the, the tenants, et cetera, et cetera. But you have no idea whether or not you guys really have a business. What is going through Mark's head and how is it that you're staying motivated in that state of the, the game that you were in? Yeah, that was like so many people talk about one of the most exciting times at the company. Mm -hmm. Frankly, in those early stages, those first six months, mm -hmm. there's no pressure on you. Mm -hmm. You're expected to fail. You're not supposed to create something successful. Mm -hmm. So it was easier. There wasn't a pressure of people saying no, because that was, again, we didn't know if we had anything mm -hmm. and we didn't expect people to necessarily believe in us. And we were just figuring it out. So it was easier back then because we didn't know if it was something that we wanted to continue pursuing. But at the end of 2016, six months after we launched the business, we felt like we had enough traction and we did enough research mm -hmm. to continue. And that's when we went out and looked to raise our first kind of real round of funding. And we ended up raising about $200,000 from a group of angel investors. Mm -hmm. In order to raise that 200000 we probably spoke to a hundred people to invest, and we got about 10 people to invest. 10% is not bad. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty good, good ratio. Pretty good. All of those no's were, what I would tell myself is, it's not the right time for them. We haven't done enough to prove our business model to them, mm -hmm. which means I've got to go back and do more. Got it. You have a multifaceted working background prior to being a founder. You worked in digital marketing, investment banking, as a CFO for an animal social club company, and the list goes on. How did these experiences shape you for success as the founder that you are today? Yeah, great question. I, I look back on my entrepreneurial journey, and it seems to be an incredibly meandering one. Finance to consulting to software development to a real estate tech company, mm -hmm. how do those things add up? But to me, it was all a very progressive journey. And it, it all kind of stacked up together to give me the skills that I've needed to get the company this far. I think it's been incredibly important for me being able to understand the finance side of a company, put together pricing strategies, understand code and software development, and be able to actually jump into an application and make changes on the fly, query a database, as well as speak intelligently with partners, software vendors, outsource developers. There's kind of two schools of thought, I think, and there's two ways to go about it. Mm -hmm. Either you're really a master of your craft mm -hmm. and you put together a team of people that are very, very good at one particular thing. Mm -hmm. You've got a sales guy who is a killer salesperson, mm -hmm. a marketing person who knows growth hacking, could write a novel about it. Mm -hmm. and a software developer who worked at Google and Apple and is a genius. Mm -hmm. That's one way to go about it. And the other way is more of kind of a jack-of-all-trades like me, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm pretty good at a number of different things, or I'm okay at a bunch of different things. In that scenario, it means that I can get the business from zero to one, but if you really want to scale the business and grow a great operation, mm -hmm. you then need to still fill it with people that, that have an expertise in a particular field. And that's really where we're at in our business today. In the past, you've aided several early stage companies in raising over $100,000. What is the secret sauce to raising capital, in your opinion? 
I'm not sure there's a secret sauce. Or what do you feel like is important to have in place in order to do so? There's definitely ingredients. In my experience, there's a lot of hustle involved. And I think that in raising capital, there's also kind of two different experiences. Mm -hmm. There's the companies that you hear about where they're pre-revenue, pre-traction, pre-product, and they just raised a million dollar seed round. Mm -hmm. And for an entrepreneur like me, it's like, what the heck? Right. Right. I've been pounding tables for 24 months and I can't get anybody to write me a check over $200,000. But you look at those teams and it's Stanford MBA, Harvard MBA, worked at Google, worked at McKinsey or Bain, and they have the backgrounds, they have the networks, Mm -hmm. and people invest in them. When it comes to the first round of funding, people often talk about how we're investing in the team, not the product. It's too early to invest in the company because we don't know what the company is going to be. But we believe that this group of people are going to be able to execute on this vision that they're bringing to table. In my experience, there was one ingredient, growth, traction. The product is great that it exists, but we would have never been able to raise money if we didn't say, we have this many customers, we're signing new customers at this rate, we're already making money, and we're not asking you to take a bet on what we're going to build. Mm -hmm. We're asking you to take a bet on what we've already built and Mm -hmm. where we're going to take this next. Okay. Now, for you, you've actually recently acquired a company or two. What are the pros and cons of doing so, and why acquire versus build the tech yourself? Sure. I mentioned earlier that we've been very, very nimble. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, I I talk about it all the time. I think it's the only reason that we've been able to survive this long. I think there's a lot of cons to acquiring a business as early in our own business as we did. Mm -hmm. It's a distraction. It could be not the best use of capital. Right. It can dilute your brand image and just take mind share and resources away from the core product. Mm -hmm. That is generally what most people, I think, will tell you when you're considering acquiring a business at such an early stage. Mm -hmm. But for us, fortunately, we're not really beholden to our investors. Our investors really believe in us, like Newark Venture Partners, like Mm -hmm. Green Egg Ventures, like all of the angel investors that have invested in our team. Mm They believe that we're always doing what we feel is right for the business and they give us the flexibility to do that. Mm -hmm. So when I came to our board meeting, I think this was in the third quarter of last year. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's this company in Saratoga Springs. Mind you, I called the founder of this company, Chris Thompson, Mm -hmm. before I started Bixby because he was already in the market for 12 or 24 months mm-hmm. selling a maintenance request product to mm-hmm. the real estate market. And I called him and I said, hey, how's it been going? How have you found success? What are the sales cycles like? Do you think that this is a viable business model? Mm-hmm. And then he said, yeah, I think there's very much a need in the, in the market. We're growing well. And we think that there's a lot of opportunity in the space. Okay. So I really appreciated Chris's willingness to take time to speak to me back then. And we maintained a relationship through the first year and a half of Bixby. Mm -hmm. And at one point he called me and he said, hey, Mark, my clients keep asking me for a more robust platform. We do the work order management component of it, being Mm -hmm. able to log maintenance requests and dispatch them to the right employee and oversee the repair. Mm -hmm. But our clients are also looking for a payment gateway to collect rent or common charge payments. Mm -hmm. 
They're looking for a way to communicate with tenants. Mm -hmm. Document storage. And our company doesn't necessarily have the resources, I think, to deliver on that. Mm -hmm. But also, we really believe in the brand and the business that you're building. And we'd like to potentially be part of your journey if there's a way for us to achieve that. Gotcha. And we were able to put together a structure where Chris became, Chris and his team sort of became part of ours. Okay. Um, and it was, I think, very much opportunistic. Everything just ended up going the right way. And we were mm-hmm. able to get a transaction done really quickly mm-hmm. that extended our offering as a brand. Mm-hmm. Now we're not just Bixby, the building amenity platform, the tenant portal company. Right. We are becoming a diversified real estate tech company that acts as the software partner, the software vendor to the real estate industry. Dude, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we have a long way to go, but, but I think that's the vision and, and uh, we're moving in the right direction. Wow. Create Your Life family. I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. I admire your humility, Mark. I really can appreciate it. You know, you're always very relatable and easy to talk to. Likewise, so, Kevin. <laughs> appreciate it. You had recently, you closed a round of funding. I know you guys are going after funding now. How much did you get to close? And my question about the gentleman, Chris, right? Yeah. Is he still on board with the company, still perhaps managing that aspect of former company? I don't know. How does it work when you acquire? Yeah, there's a lot of different structures. So I'll talk about Chris first. Mm -hmm. Um, We made an asset purchase. We bought the assets of his company Mm -hmm. and we gave him equity in our business. Okay. So that was the transaction. At this point, we'd only raised about Mm $250,000, $300,000. So it's not like we were going out there and buying a company with a big check. Yeah. But- because Chris believed in our business and felt that his customer base was looking for a product more like ours, we were able to structure an equity deal. So work orders as a company, Chris oversees the business, but it's a free product. We use it as a lead generation tool. Mm. It's our way of saying to the market, we know that there's people and groups out here Mm -hmm. who are not ready to make a financial commitment to a technology product for their property management business, Mm -hmm. but they're looking for something to stay more organized. Mm -hmm. So let's offer this as a free product so that people can get the benefits from it, but when they're ready for a more robust platform, they can move into the Bixby app. And so it's really a a lead gen tool, and we spend very, very little resources in further building the product or even marketing the product. It's all paid search via Google. Mm-hmm. That's how we drive customers. And then we use that to fill our funnel for Bixby. Okay. And uh, and Chris runs is still in Saratoga Springs and, and he runs an agency now. And we still work really closely with him. And I speak to Chris every few weeks. In terms of raising money and, and kind of how we structured it, I mentioned that we raised the $35,000 in April 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, we raised another $200,000 in an angel round in 
December 2016. Mm -hmm. And then we closed $750,000 in May of 2018. Okay. One of the things I didn't realize was my number one responsibility as the CEO of the company mm -hmm. is making sure the company has money. Yeah. Hands down, the number one responsibility. What flipped that switch on? When I realized that for probably 18 of the last 24 months, I've been raising money. Huh. Okay. It's an absolute full-time job. We raised the 35000 and we kind of got into product mode. Mm -hmm. But then moving into the third and fourth quarter of 2016, it was all about raising money. As soon, pretty much three months after we closed that $200,000, we started raising money again. And this pre-seed round was by far the most difficult round for us to raise because we were no longer asking people for $20,000, $30,000, $50,000. We were asking people for $100,000, $200,000, $300,000. Mm. becomes a very different conversation. Absolutely. Uh, I can only imagine. 10,000 is a very real number. It's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. 100,000 is even more so. So it was a grueling six or seven month process where I probably spoke to almost every VC in the New York City area. Mm -hmm. And predominantly the feedback was, you're just still a little bit too early. I think we were in a real estate space that people saw the opportunity in an industry that was finally embracing technology. Hmm. But they also saw the challenges there. It's an old school industry. It moves slowly. Yes, it's one of the oldest industries and one of the last ones to be disrupted by technology. But when is the industry going to hit that tipping point mm -hmm. where the majority of the market, the mass market, embraces a product like ours? And is it too early to take a bet on a company who's only been around for 12 months and is only making $5,000 a month? Mm. So we got a lot of that. It got discouraging. In June of 2017, we had to let go of everyone in the company. Oh, wow. We had five people at that time. We'd scaled up thinking that we were going to raise money, and we, we were running hard. We were really ambitious, and, and we, were, we wanted to really push the envelope and escape the competition and create barriers to anybody else entering our mm -hmm. space. But we were out of money. And so one of the hardest things I've had to do as a CEO, at least to that point, I came into the office. It was the first week of June, and I said, look, guys, I don't have money to pay you for the next two pay periods. If you want to stay, I'd absolutely love that, but I don't expect you to stay. And everybody except for our lead engineer left that day. And the idea was we're going to raise this money and we're going to bring you back. Mm -hmm. But we had to get really lean. We probably had two or three months of runway left mm -hmm. and we had to cut expenses and go into survival mode. Did anybody come back? Similarly, they moved away. They got other jobs and other mm -hmm. commitments, and we invited them back. Right. But at that time, they had full-time jobs elsewhere and, and weren't ready to come back. Question for you. If someone is willing to walk out the door because the funding is no longer there, how do you take that as a CEO, meaning are you really here for the vision of the company or are you here for a check? And then are you inviting them back out of convenience because they're familiar with the system? versus someone who really wants to be there that's going to help you when times get hard? Because you talked a little bit about that vision earlier. How did you balance that and be able to decipher it? I know ultimately it was decided for you, but even coming to the decision of, oh, you know what, I'm going to ask this question. Yeah, I think in large part, you invite them back because of the convenience and mm -hmm. the lack of training. 
you spend a lot of time getting people up to speed on the business, whether Absolutely. if they're developers, teaching them the code base. And once mm -hmm. they know it, you really want to hold on to that person because you just spend a month or two getting them to mm -hmm. know it. And now, and now they do. And if they leave and you have to bring on somebody else, you're starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. And as a startup or an early stage company, you don't have that time. You mm -hmm. literally don't have the cash time, the resources. But I think it's asking a lot really, really is asking a lot of people at an early stage to have the same kind of passion and commitment to the company as the founders. Yeah. I mean, first off, the majority of people in the market, people generally, they're working for a paycheck, right? right. They, they work to live, as mm -hmm. they say. I yeah. want to do my nine to five. I want to get my paycheck. I want to get back to my family. I want to go to the gym. I want to, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. So that's the majority of the people. To find somebody who's at a point in their life where they're willing to, to sacrifice their life for something else, mm -hmm. that in and of itself, you're dealing with a much smaller percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. And then if you're looking for people in the same region as you, passion for the same industry, now you're, you're again cutting down that percentage of the population that fit that mold. Mm -hmm. I think it's really asking a lot for an entrepreneur or a founder to say, you're leaving because you're not getting paid Come on, you as a founder probably own 20, 30, 40, 50 plus percent of the company. This person very much does not. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not sure that you can um, set that kind of expectation. And I don't blame the team for leaving at all. I miss them, certainly. And we're still friends. Oh, that's uh, great. And I mean, the relationship is what's most important, right? Because you never know if somebody will come back. Or if you do need them, you know, if there was something that you knew that they can handle. But I just wanted to hear your transparent thoughts around that. Other than consistency, what has been the keys to your growth personally? Because I know that the mark sitting here talking to me now is not the same mark for 2016. So how are you and have you been growing as a person and what are some of the things that you've been doing in order to do so? Yeah, I think actually I've been really, really critical of myself very recently. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like I was potentially doing a better job of leading the company two years ago than I am today. And that's not to say that in a few months I won't be the best leader I have been. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm always very, very critical of myself, and I think that I can improve a ton. Mm -hmm. I've always told our team, I don't know if I'm going to be the CEO of the company forever. I'm the CEO of the company today because I'm the best person to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. But I'm the founder of this business. Mm -hmm. That's very different than a CEO. Absolutely. It takes a different personality, a different mentality. Some people can transition mm -hmm. from a founder to a CEO, and I, and I hope that I'll be able to do that. But a founder has to be scrappier, hustle, and is going from zero to one. Mm -hmm. A CEO has to be a real leader. And mm -hmm. I have a very, very long way to go, I think, in becoming a great leader. Fortunately, I've begun to put a lot of great people around me that mm -hmm. can help me make that transition Mm -hmm. um, and improve myself to be a great leader. But I've certainly changed a lot since, since we started the business in 2016. But starting a company is a really tough journey. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot out of you. The number of sleepless nights. Yesterday, I'm at the office and talking to two individuals who will hopefully be joining our advisory board. And my goal right now is to create the family. Right? Mm -hmm. If we find success five years from now, mm -hmm. I want to metaphorically fill the rest of the chairs at this table. Right. Because not only do I not want to celebrate success by myself, but right. I'm not likely to find success, success by, yourself. by myself. Mm -hmm. And Kelly's like, 
and Kelly's one of the individuals there. Yeah, I swear that there's an air mattress somewhere under this table. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's right there. And I'll be sleeping at the office tonight. Mm. Those things really take a toll on you mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to the gym in six months. I broke my arm playing soccer a few months ago. So I haven't done yoga, haven't run. I now have metal in both my arms. I've got pins and plates in both my arms. I'm like oh, the wow. bionic man here. I'm just moving closer and closer to singularity and, and just becoming a robot. <laughs> but the reason I say I'm not sure I feel like I did a better job back then was mm-hmm. we were starting from scratch and I really had the opportunity to do things exactly how I wanted. Mm-hmm. Monday morning stand-ups, Friday morning all-hands meetings, taking the team out to lunch, doing community service as a company. Mm-hmm. We were doing all of these things as if we were the company that we ultimately wanted to be. Right. But when you're dealing with a situation where you have $20,000 left in the bank Mm -hmm. and you're trying to figure out how to get to the next month, Mm -hmm. you start to toss stuff out the window. Right. All of a sudden, what do you mean go out to lunch today? We're in survival mode. We've got to deliver on this for the client. Yeah. All of a sudden, you start saying no to meetings. Because you you realize that if I said yes to every single meeting, I will be sitting in meetings all, all, day. T- all day in a conference yeah, room. And because of that, I've gotten into a very much discuss less, execute more. But I like that. That's a great quote. I say it to my team like every week. Because a lot of times I'll say something and I'll get, cool, cool, let's, uh, let's discuss that tomorrow. And I'm like, let's not discuss it. Let's just go out and do it. Right. And it's not necessarily things that I say, but what anybody says. You can spend so much time discussing, mm-hmm. especially at this stage in our company where we have the liberty of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. You got to get out there and just do it. Right. So I think that besides a lot to learn as a leader and a lot of ways to improve myself, mm-hmm. it's a factor of getting to the next day. Now we're in a position in our company where we've got a lot of great momentum right? and we're out raising a new round of funding. And I mm-hmm. think we're going to close it faster than we've closed any round. Okay. And the next six months for me are all about becoming a better leader. Mark, who's your sounding board right now, man? You, you kind of like you're, you're critical of yourself, which is important to be self-aware. However, you know, we oftentimes have success amnesia and we're tougher on ourselves than might be necessary. So who's that sounding board for you? Because from the outside looking in, man, you're doing good. You're doing really well, you know, and you're growing. And I can see a difference in you from just when we finished SLP together in April. So who's your sounding board? What does your peer group look like? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, SLP, right? The Startup Leadership Program where you and I met. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, it's not an incubator or an accelerator, but it's a network. It's a global network mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that A, you don't learn the skills and the processes of starting a company in your curriculum at school or in university. And so the best way to teach entrepreneurship is to learn from people that have gone through that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what SLP is based on. At the same time, the notion that starting a company is a really, really difficult challenge Mm -hmm. and... It is a better journey when you're doing it with other people going through the same thing. Very true. Right? So that's our peers at SLP are a huge sounding board. And being able to take those Tuesday evenings, take yourself out of the business for a little bit, 
share the challenges, the successes with other people. I mean, that was therapy for sure. Okay. So huge network. Got it. I see that you recently partnered with real-time mobility data platform Transit Screen to bring transit updates to residents that use Bixby. What and how does your team go about vetting and deciding on what partnerships work well for the company? So early on, we were looking to partner with anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. We potentially, we weren't that focused, mm-hmm. um, but also kind of coming back to that nimble approach, every partnership or conversation might have enlightened us into something that we didn't know about previously mm-hmm. and opened up a direction for the company that could have been a very lucrative one or the right one. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we had to take a different approach because you just you can't take every meeting. You can't talk to everybody. It's just with limited resources, it's not possible. That being said, the real estate technology space is a small one, kind of like any other industry. Mm-hmm. You start to really get to know the other people, and there's kind of just a a handful of them. Um, You see the same people at all the conferences. You see the same people at the panels, the trade shows. You build a rapport with them, and, and you become a fan of what they're building. For us at Bixby, we've got this intrinsic customer base. We're mm-hmm. a B2C product. That mm-hmm. means that we sell our product to businesses, to property management companies, but then we get access to their tenants and residents. Mm-hmm. And our monetization really relies on recommending products and services to tenants mm-hmm. that make their life more comfortable and convenient, and then making money from the vendors that provide those services or products. Gotcha. So with Transit Screen, we saw a company that was serving a key pain point for the same customer base. Mm-hmm. The pain point they were solving was information about public transportation and your options in a given area. Mm-hmm. And we knew that you know, when I'm leaving my building or when a resident's leaving their building, especially in places like New York that rely so heavily on public transportation, mm-hmm. it's nice to know when the next train's coming, when the next bus is coming, which one's closest to you. So because we aligned on customers because we aligned on the value that their product offered, it was a no-brainer. Okay. How do you feel that your company is going to change the market and what are the main differentiators between you and your competitors? So I think the way that we're changing the market is by modernizing and digitizing the property management business. To date, property management still a very old-school industry that relies heavily on analog and paper-based processes. Mm-hmm. For example, you'll often see maintenance staff come to the management office once a day or once a week to collect a stack of maintenance requests Mm -hmm. written on paper. Mm -hmm. We don't expect for that to be the future of the industry. Mm -hmm. So we're introducing relatively simple technology, Mm -hmm. messaging, work order management, which is kind of just ticketing like a Zendesk. Mm electronic payments, like all of these things exist in every other industry. Mm -hmm. We're just bringing it all into one place in a a comprehensive, integrated product with a great user experience, a mobile first experience Mm -hmm. into an industry that's never, that hasn't really adopted technology before. Mm -hmm. So the grand vision for the company, what we hope to be 10, 20, 30 years later. And yeah, we do think about the business in that sense. We don't think about the company as oh, we're going to sell this in three years, maybe. But we really think about the very long term, what is it that we want to accomplish? And we're very passionate about the work that we're doing. 
And the goal for us is, is kind of twofold. Make property management more accessible mm-hmm. and make real estate as an income generating asset more accessible to people so that anybody can manage an asset. Right? I think investing in real estate is a really great business. It's a, it can be a relatively passive income generating and very lucrative business. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to see it extend kind of and, and grow uh, beyond kind of the 270 or 300,000 property management companies that exist today and mm-hmm. let other individuals participate in this asset class. One of the important factors in doing that is making it easy or easier for them to manage property. And so our product, I think, is certainly accomplishes that. And then creating efficiencies. What we focus on more than anything is empowering and enabling our clients, property managers, Mm -hmm. to grow their business and be as successful as possible. And so reducing maintenance time, reducing maintenance cost, Mm -hmm. reducing the number of people who move out of your building or reducing turnover, increasing Mm -hmm. retention. Those are kind of some of the KPIs or key performance indicators that we think that we can have an impact on with our product. And then as we go further into our business, uh, things like AI and machine learning start to play a role. Mm -hmm. And how can we understand the problems that a building faces seasonally and provide data around that to our clients such that they can get in front of the issue before it becomes a real big problem that requires a huge capital expenditure. So preventive maintenance is a huge component of what we're trying to accomplish. Okay. And what are some of the things that you wish you knew before jumping into being a founder of a company? Wow. One of those things is definitely the role of the CEO in raising capital and making sure that the company is funded. It's so obvious, right? If the company doesn't have money, there's no company. Right. But when you're in it, it seems to be a bit different because you want all of the processes and the things to flow. You know, you're more so working in the business versus on it. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you go into a business, you're focused on building a product, changing an industry, making an impact. You don't really start a company and say, I'm going to start this to raise money. Although it's, it starts to feel that way when you're spending so much time on raising capital for the business. But mm-hmm. the truth is, there's no business without money. So it's a very important component of the company. So that that's one of the things that I wish I knew. And then another thing is probably how difficult it can be to be a good leader, mm. to hire people, to train people. HR is its own kind of industry for a reason. Human resources is an incredibly important component of a company. It's why the biggest companies in the world focus on it so much. And your business is only as good as its people. Gotcha. That's very true. Who are some of your heroes that you look up to? There's a lot. For a while, the person that I read the most about whose success I wanted to emulate were the Richard Bransons and the Elon Musks of Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. I've been a student of Steve Jobs for a while. I think I've got kind of differing opinions on him and his leadership style. A genius, no doubt. Built an incredible business in Apple. But I think more recently, I've been looking at, I guess, younger entrepreneurs or people that aren't necessarily as popular as like the Richard Bransons and and Elon Musk. So Mm -hmm. an example of that would be Stuart Butterfield at Slack. He built an incredible business. He built it incredibly quickly. 
and it all came from a pivot. You know, Stuart was building an online game, a video game, mm-hmm. and realized that in building the game, they had built this internal communication tool upon which they would not have been able, or without which they wouldn't have been able to operate. Mm-hmm. And they completely pivoted the company to become a, a workforce productivity and communication platform. Mm-hmm. It takes so much, I think, for an entrepreneur to take himself out of something you're so passionate about and have committed so much and to say, you know what, we're going to go in a completely different direction. Mm -hmm. So I have a ton of respect for Stuart Butterfield and try to learn as much as I can from his journey. Okay. What advice would you give to others looking to become founders like you? The advice that I would give is be willing to sacrifice be willing to work hard, right? Those are kind of generic. People will tell you that all the time. But really, I think, understand the gravity of those things. Starting a company, like I said, is not about playing ping pong and raising millions of dollars. It's like for any athlete, like for anybody who's successful in their business, it's about the things that you do when no one's watching. And the sleepless nights sleeping at the office, the being able to take a no and bounce back from it. Mm-hmm. I think those are the things that separate a successful entrepreneur from the ones who just, um, they, they can't make it to that next step in the business. Got you. What would you say are some startup success hacks that everyone should know? Well, people always say that the team is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. The most important startup success hack, I think, is find people early on who believe in what you want to build, mm-hmm. convince them of your vision, mm-hmm. and give them whatever they need to be motivated to help you execute on it because you just can't do it on your own. Okay. So I think that's a success hack. Another one would be do your research. Raising money can be a much, much quicker process if you put in, if you do the homework, meaning Find the VCs that are right for your business. Don't spend time calling a thousand venture capital firms when only a hundred of them invest in B2B businesses at the pre-seed or seed stage. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, I'd say identify your drawbacks or the gaps that you have in your expertise and find the individuals that can fill those. And that's like slightly separate than your founding team. It's your first hires. Okay. What has been the biggest personal challenge that you have needed to overcome in order to be who you are today? Still, still very, very, very much grappling with the control freak syndrome, if you will. I have a very, very quick tendency to just do it myself. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it yourself. Uh, You can't do everything when you're starting a business. Mm -hmm. Um, Letting go. Letting go is probably uh, one of the biggest challenges and being okay with handing somebody off to somebody, knowing that it's not going to be done exactly the way you want it to be done mm-hmm. or the way you would have done it, mm-hmm. but that not necessarily meaning that it's, that it's wrong or that it's not of the quality that, that we've set as standards for the company. Absolutely. And create your life family. One thing that we often say here is that if you can find somebody who can do it 80 percent as well as you can, then you need to delegate. I think that's uh need to bring that back to the company because absolutely true. 
Yes. So who's been your biggest champion on your path to becoming who you are today? Interestingly for me, I think it's been my father. I mean, I say interestingly because he moved to this country hoping that his sons would be a doctor, a lawyer, and a banker, right? He, ca- <laughs> okay. he came for the American dream and that stability. He mm-hmm. knew how difficult it was to be an entrepreneur and start your own business. And I, I don't think he wanted that for us. And I went to business school. I started working in finance. And as far as he was concerned, I was on the right path. Right. The path that he wanted, but also the right path. Mm-hmm. And when I left finance, he was devastated. I mean, I started consulting for this these weird early stage companies, making very little money, bartending at night. Mm-hmm. I worked retail for a time, selling clothes. He was like, what are you doing, man? You mm-hmm. had it. You were there. You worked so hard. You had a great job. Mm-hmm. You're ruining your life. Oh, wow. I mean, this is two years of him telling me this. Mm-hmm. But I had to say, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should because you were an entrepreneur yourself, but you don't understand. Mm-hmm. This is the life that I want to create for myself. I haven't created it yet. But if I stop, then I'll never create it. It wasn't about till about a year ago that he became a true believer in what I'm building. And uh, he's been going from your father not believing at all in what you're doing mm-hmm. to and somebody who you, you respect mm-hmm. to giving you a little bit of that validation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I actually, I'm starting to see it now. And mm-hmm. I think that you have a, a huge opportunity here. And I'm, I'm really proud of, of what you've built and what you're building it meant the world to me. And one of those, to your point about what keeps you going mm-hmm. in, those, in those days when it's no for breakfast, no for lunch, no for dinner. Mm-hmm. It's having a call and, and somebody saying, hey, you know, I think you're doing a great job. Don't give up. I love it. Create your life family. What Mark is saying is believing your vision so tough that even if your parents, anyone close to you is saying that they don't see it or that you're not doing the right thing, to stay the course. And Mark said the words himself, create your life, create the life that you want for yourself. And that's what makes a huge difference. Mark, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? What career or hobby or anything that you wanted to pursue? Wow. It's a tough question to answer because I've been so committed, right? So <laughs> in the weeds of this business that I I can't imagine even doing anything else. I think that if I wasn't doing this business, I'd be trying to build something else. Okay. And um, we have grand visions for Bixby and it could very well be my, my lifelong work. Mm-hmm. But I I also do hope that one day I'll also have the opportunity to build something else, whether that's a a product, a nonprofit, a business. So I'm passionate about building things, and I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to do that and learn what that's like and get better at it. And I want to take what I've learned, and I want to do it again, and I want to help other people do it. Okay, awesome. What's the one thing that if someone could come into your company and help you with, uh, what would that be? Like today, if today. I if somebody walked in today or somebody tomorrow. Somebody walked in today and said, hey, Mark, what do you need? I can help you with that. Sales. Like a sales hacker guru. Sales is such an art, I think. Mm-hmm. There are, you can read sales books that talk about body language and where you should stand when you're talking to somebody else. For mm-hmm. example, not necessarily squaring up with them mm-hmm. um, and standing face to face, but 
standing kind of in an open stance, more shoulder to shoulder with them because it makes it feel like it's not kind of an attack defense type conversation, but Mm -hmm. more of an open conversation that you'd have with a colleague. So there are people out there who have years and years of experience in understanding these little intricacies and how you can really find ways to reduce sales cycles by two or three times and identify the right prospects. At the end of the day, there's no business without sales. You can't forget that. I learned uh, when I was working in the fashion industry that there's only two places that you really make money, sales and ownership. Anything else is a game and it's capped. So absolutely. I guess another way of saying is uh, as long as you're working for someone else, you're not working for yourself. True. Right. All right. So, Mark, my next question to you is, is, can you swim? I can. I can swim. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) Good to know because we're about to jump into the dolphin tank. Okay. And so the dolphin tank is just rapid fire questions. And so are you ready? Ready when you are. Okay. What are your goal setting methods and how do you measure or make sure that you are growing each year? I set goals on a quarterly basis. I -hmm. write down five goals that I want to pursue. I review them at the end of the quarter. And in most cases, I write them down again. Love it. What was holding you back from creating your best life? Holding me back from creating my best life was the ambition or belief that I can create my best life and that it was in my hands and in my control. Got you. Top tech that you are using to make your business run smoothly. Slack. (laughs) Awesome. Favorite quote or model that you live by? Favorite quote would be, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. Favorite or most impactful book that you've read? The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Three jewels you would tell someone looking to create their best life? Believe in yourself. Find a community that can support you. Don't stop till you reach your goal. What's next for you? Next step in Bixby. Taking us from 250000 a year to $2 million a year to $10 million a year to $50 million a year. Love it. How can someone get on your platform if they're interested in making their life easy as a tenant or property manager? Love that question. So if, if you're... <laughs> salesman, salesman. Yep, absolutely. You, you already know. So if you're a property manager, landlord, go to livebixby.co. There's a sign up button in the upper right hand corner. You can take the app for a spin in our sandbox account. You can create an account for yourself for free. It takes a few minutes. It's very easy to use and intuitive. You'll get a sense for it right away. Up to 20 units or apartments on the product is completely free for you to use forever. Once you have that 21st unit, it's going to ask you to start paying a dollar per unit per month. As a tenant, one of the things people don't know is that anybody can use Bixby even if your building hasn't signed up for an account. So if you're still out there writing a check every month and mailing it into your manager or stopping by the management office to drop it off, mm-hmm. create an account for yourself with Bixby. You can add your bank account. We'll automate the check from your bank account. Every time you pay, you get access to discounts and promotions with great brands like Equinox, Starbucks, a local coffee shop, Cleanly, Lemonade Renters Insurance. So any service that you're looking for from a handyman to dry cleaning, you can get through the app. Go to livebixby.co or find our app in the app store. It's called Bixby, B-I-X-B-Y. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Okay. What's the best way to keep in contact with you? Best way to keep in contact with me is via email. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Smuckleberry, just like Huckleberry, but Smuckleberry. Or 
you can email me at mark at livebixby.co. I know you like my handle, Kevin. <laughs> I do, man. It's actually pretty awesome. Huckleberry Smuggle Finn man. was my favorite book growing up. Okay. That's hilarious. Talk about taking a journey. Huckleberry had a, <laughs> one of the best. Yeah, that is wild. Uh, so we've reached a point in the interview called The Turnaround. And what The Turnaround is is where you become the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. And so you are in control. And I only have one request, Mark. What is it? Please be gentle. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Three questions. First question is, Kevin. Yes. How did you get here? And what was it like in the first six months of the Create Your Life series? Wow. So you want the video series? So it started off as a YouTube series. So do you want me to talk about the YouTube part or do you want to talk about the radio aspect? Would love to hear that transition, how it started as a video, how it came into radio. Okay. Well, it started off as a video series. I was going to Osaka, Japan to go and speak at a conference, an international foster care conference. And I grew up in foster care my whole life. So I thought it was a full circle moment and was really, really excited. But I think that a lot of people don't get out of their environments and actually go and see the world. And so here I was going to Japan for 15 days. And I don't speak Japanese, but I knew that I wanted to go to at least seven different cities and I was going to make it happen. And so while on my way there, I said, hey, you know what? Let me make this a interactive opportunity for others to see the culture in Japan so that they can know that they can go there. And let me mix in just a dabble of motivation, you know, and the things that I'm learning here. And so I created it. I shot it in 10 different episodes, about two to three minutes each, and then came back home, edited it up and threw it up on YouTube. And so the Create Your Life series was born out of that. The phrase Create Your Life came from me telling one of the teachers after being in trouble in high school, she asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to create my life. I want to move as far away from here as possible. I want to be happy every day. I want to be a millionaire. I want to have my own clothing line and I want to have my own show. Right. So those were the things that were really the idea behind it. But I think that anybody, if you're willing to do the work, as you said earlier, you know, you can create your life. And so the transition to the radio is I'd actually taken some time off from the Create Your Life series. And I had the opportunity to be on someone's show here at the station. And the manager contacted that person and said, I love this interview. This is why you have a show to have people on like this. And so me being me, I called up to the station and I said, do you guys have any room for another show? I was thinking about doing a podcast at the time. And so I thought that it would be a competitive advantage to be live on radio and not try to bring people into my house, into my basement in order to interview them. So she said, for you, I will actually make some room and the rest is history. Wow. Awesome. Talk about creating your life. Hey, it's the only way to live, man. So question two. Mm -hmm. I think we all, you're, you're a TEDx speaker. Yes. I think we, we all want to know, how does one become a TEDx speaker? How did you become a TEDx speaker? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. If you want to become a TEDx speaker, Mark, I, I can help you do that. It's easier than people think. It's a matter of just getting on the, the radar and applying. I'm oversimplifying possibly to an extent because I am a professional speaker. So preparing and stuff like that wasn't hard for me. However, you just decide what you're going to speak about. Try to find the TEDx location that really lends to that subject matter and apply and apply to multiples. And you might end up having multiple engagements. But right. yeah, it was definitely, a, it was a fun experience. Yeah, it makes sense. You, you touch on something that, that I didn't mention, but I think is really important. You said just apply. Yeah. So many doors opened up to me in the Bixby journey by, by just filling out that form, just mm -hmm. raising that hand. 
yeah. right? Just showing up to that meeting or that meetup. So I think to your point, take that first step, right? Absolutely. Or just ask. Or just <laughs> ask. Exactly. Absolutely. Third question. Mm-hmm. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I'd be a clothing designer. Yeah. Easy. That's, that's actually what my what I studied in college. So yeah, that's like my first thing. Is like that in your future, you think? I think, yeah. I mean, we, we have a, a bit of apparel for Create Your Life. I definitely want to do some more have some ideas, but yeah, I definitely want to beef up the merchandise aspect of the, of the brand for sure. Cool. Well, you give a, you give a ton of advice, right? You're, you're an incredibly motivational person. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. What's a word of advice for, for this show that we can leave all the listeners with? Feed your ambition. That's what matters. I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to be in alignment with what it is that you want to do with your life. And I think when you're following that, It'll be tough, but it'll be worth it only when you're doing what you want to do. So feed your ambition. That's my slogan. And ambition is my word. I love it with all of my heart. Love that. Love that. (laughs) All right. Well, Mark, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Kevin. Absolute pleasure. Okay. So Create Your Life family, thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and rate and review us. This helps us build this community and building the community is what we are all about right now so that we can deliver as much value as possible to you. So until next time, create your life and feed your ambition. This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-877. 8273 to schedule your consultation and remember to use code CYLS that's podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273